Hello, everyone, and welcome to Novel. This is your host, Caleb Linville. Today, I am very excited to present episode 11 of When the Mountains Called. This is the last episode that we will be sharing for When the Mountains Called, and the conclusion of the fascinating and, in some ways, very real journey which Andrew started way back in episode one. But before we get to the episode, I have a few people to thank you. With a project this size, you really can't do it alone, and I was very lucky to have the help and the brilliance of Shannon Baker, who wrote the story, and then of Jonathan Keener, who has been the voice which has brought When the Mountains Called to Life. Additionally, I would like to thank Mati, without whom we wouldn't have had so much fun with the commentary episodes. And I would also like to thank my brother, Luke Linville, and my good friend, Kelly Gerba, who both helped out with this last episode. And thus concludes Season 1 of Novel, and the end of When the Mountains Called. I'm currently gathering ideas for Season 2. It will be a completely different story, completely different characters, and it will explore different themes, I'm sure. And I don't know exactly when that will be released, but hopefully at some point in the near future. And so it's very important, if you're interested in hearing Season 2, that you go ahead and hit the subscribe button or the follow button. That way, when it is released, you'll be the first to know about it. And with that, I'll turn it over to Shannon, who has a quick message for everybody before this last segment of our story. Hey everyone, this is Shannon Baker. Thanks for listening to When the Mountains Called. So book dedications or poem dedications or dedications for any kind of writing really um, can mean a variety of things. Sometimes an author dedicates a story to someone who inspired it. They inspired the plot, they inspired the themes, or simply inspired the author themselves during the writing process. Other times, the dedication is to someone who was impacted by that particular writing. But in both cases, I think, the dedication takes a moment to honor someone who was in some way part of the writing. Someone who makes the writing more meaningful, more complete. When the Mountains Called was not a solo effort, the ideas and the themes behind it, as well as the plot itself, was influenced by so many people that I would be remiss to try to name and write a dedication for all of them. But there is one person in particular without whom the entire story and the musings that resulted from it and that, for me, continue to result from it All of this without this person would be absolutely impossible. Without this person, I would not have been so keen to step into Andrew's shoes and to take the journey with him. And so, Josh Yero, this particular story, Andrew's story, and mine, is for you. I'll see you in the mountains. The bucket in his hands was heavier than Andrew expected. It knocked into his knees as he walked, 
and as he hoisted it to his arms to instead support it from the bottom, some of the sap sloshed up the bucket's side and onto the hand that gripped its handle. Oh boy, he muttered as he bent and straightened his fingers. They felt tacky already. Next to him, Ernest Endelway chuckled. Don't worry about it, he said in a soft voice that was once again beginning to be familiar. I lose about 20% of what the trees give up just through transport each year, and I still end up with more syrup than I know what to do with. Andrew nodded, stabilizing the five-gallon sap bucket under his chin while he positioned his hands once again at its base. I guess gardening and canning doesn't exactly build up your strength, he said, and Ernest chuckled again. Maybe not, he said, but you're still trucking through these woods like you've been trucking through them your whole entire life. It was true. As the two men walked through Ernest Endelway's back forty, the endless forest behind his and Suzanne's country home, Andrew found himself gliding over tree roots, ducking under low hanging branches with ease, and effortlessly maneuvering past hidden stumps and turned up rocks. Ernest wasn't slow, either, but there was something about the way Andrew moved, his speed, precision, and spatial awareness that seemed, well, otherworldly. Practice, I guess, said Andrew, not really knowing what to say, and Ernest, to his credit, didn't pry. It had been several months since Andrew had left the Valley of Rest and stepped into the great river that he knew would take him home. Several months since he had watched the forgetting man disappear, said goodbye to the wildering people, watched the altruist work his healing work, witnessed the sunbeam that was Mac highlight the summit of the highest peak in the Third Mountains. It had been several months since he had woken up just past the fence of his own quiet fields, stepped back into its boundaries, and set off for that little house that waited atop the hill, still, peaceful, and unburned, like he had never left. All things considered, a very large part of him wanted to dismiss it all, climbing the mountains, resting in the valley, and everything in between, as some wild, fantastical dream. He had simply drifted off while watching a particularly artistic sunset, and he had woken the next day in his same field, looking out over the same mountains that he had only imagined had called to him. But he couldn't. He couldn't bring himself to believe that it had all not been real. In his mind, even months later, while he was weeding, or cooking, or simply walking through the fields by his house, Max Drawl drifted suddenly into deep, echoey, and timeless wisdom. The valley girl's black skirts spread in the coursing, callous river. The laughter and revelry of the wildering people danced into his ears and through the pictures in his mind as vibrantly as they had when he had been there in person. Because he had been there in person, hadn't he? More than anything else, it was the way Andrew felt that convinced him his journey had been more than a figment of his imagination, or some strange elliptical dream. Because upon waking in his field, with the looming gray mountains across the steadily flowing river down below, Andrew had felt a thousand things. Confusion, joy, wonder, peace. But there was one thing he did not feel. Complacency. His house was still standing, but it had been burning before. He was sure of it. The closet in the entryway had spilled a thousand memories, and back in the valley he had picked them up, one by one, until they were uncluttered again and visible, back on the shelves, but with the door open, so that anyone who might enter could see them. He could not pretend that in this world now he could shove them away, and he realized, 
as he stared unblinking at the cloudless purple-blue sky above, that he did not want to. When he had first stepped back into his cabin, he went to the windows, untying the cotton-blue curtains that had been pinned back for the past couple of decades. They were wrinkled at first, and he imagined them protesting in the breeze after being restrained for so long. But as the weeks passed, their wrinkles softened, and soon they floated harmoniously with the brisk spring wind that wafted through the windows. Then, he had gone through that entryway closet for real, taking out Pearl's mandolin, her trekking poles, a thousand board games with their pieces scattered, and he rifled through all of it, making two piles. One of the closet boxes he put back in the closet, which freed up many shelves for some of the new gear he had purchased. New hiking boots, new trekking poles, because he wanted to start hiking again, and regularly. The other box he took to town the next day, knocking on the door of Roger's thrift, and much to the owner's surprise, donated the entirety of its compartments. He also went to the food and stuff and bought a large bag of horse feed, after asking Fran, the cashier and resident equestrian, if she knew of anybody in town looking to sell a horse. It's Andrew, Pearl's husband, he clarified when she gave him a questioning look. Her face had lit up behind her oversized spectacles, her flyaway gray hair almost quivering with shock and excitement, and she'd sprung around from behind the counter to crush his lungs in a massive, even for her stature, massive hug. Over the next few months, Andrew had visited the other shops in town, and every now and then even stopped in at Pearl's church events. After 25 years, a lot had changed, but then again, much had not. The town was still the small, familial place he had remembered it being, though he still wasn't one to jump at community fundraisers or spend more than an hour at the local watering hole more than once every two weeks. Andrew did, for the first time since Pearl's death, make an effort to be a part of the community. He sold canned preserves, apples and peaches mostly, at the farmer's market every Friday, each mason jar wrapped in a hastily scrawled label, Pearl's Preserves. It wasn't glamorous, but as they had been 25 years ago, even unnamed, Pearl's Preserves were the best in town, and Andrew's booth sold out each week within the first couple hours of opening. It was there, at the farmer's market, one sunny Friday, a couple of months after his return, that Andrew ran into a petite, energetic woman who still, decades later, had the same spiky short hair even if now it was gray instead of jet black. Her husband stood a few feet behind her, as if to make room for her personality, but he was smiling too. Andrew? Andrew? Suzanne had shouted, and Ernest had laid a hand on her arm to restrain her from bulldozing through the crowd. She was hunched over and shuffled along instead of the agile bouncing he remembered, but Andrew would have recognized her in a heartbeat. Hello, Suzanne. It's been a while. It's good to see you. He was pleased to find that he meant it. A while, she'd echoed, pulling him into a hug. It's been decades. How are you? She blurted, and then immediately looked up, fear washing over her features. I mean, I'm sorry, I... I've never been better, Andrew had assured her, putting a hand on her arm. She'd smiled then, a bright, sunny thing, and he'd thought of Pearl. Since that day, he'd visited the Endelway Syrup Farm more than a few times. And over the last few weeks, Ernest had begun to show him the specificities of his business. How he tapped the trees, the process of collecting, and the storage of sap for the late spring when they could begin to boil it down into a syrup. 
Andrew enjoyed the long walks through the forest with Ernest, collecting sap. As before, when they'd made light conversation during their wives' errands, the two men didn't feel the need to fill every silence with sound. The ferns crunched underfoot, the birds sang in the trees, and the sunlight warmed their faces in the cold spring morning. This, thought Andrew, was simple and good. Back at the house, Suzanne had made a maple pound cake. As the men took off their boots, she set two plates and a couple of mugs down on the kitchen table before turning back to the counter to prepare her own. Andrew watched her dip a large spoon into a pot on the stovetop and glaze the top of her slice with a thick maple syrup-based icing. Turning back to the table, he could see she was biting her lip, as if to inhibit herself from speaking. Something on your mind, Suzanne? asked Andrew, taking a sip of coffee. She cast him a fervative look before looking plainly at her husband. Over the rim of the mug to his lips, Ernest only tilted his head and looked down as if to say, Up to you. Suzanne put her fork down. Andrew, she said, staring at him. Andrew copied her, resting his fork on his plate. Suzanne? Ernest, said Ernest, and chuckled quietly. Suzanne shot him a look, but husband only smiled and took another sip of coffee. Suzanne shifted in her seat to face Andrew. Andrew, she repeated, I have a question. Well, it's more of a favor, actually. Andrew stiffened. Mm, okay, he asked, hoping against hope Suzanne wasn't asking him to volunteer as a caller at the next church auction. Well, said Suzanne, knitting her knuckles together above her plate. She looked up again. I don't know what happened to you a couple of months ago. Or why, or how, I mean. Well, how you... It's like you came back to life, you know? Andrew nodded, and though he was still concerned about having to begrudgingly accept some volunteer position, he found himself washed in warmth and appreciation for this bubbly yet perceptive woman in front of him. It's just, continued Suzanne. She paused, and then she flung her hands down at her lap as the words tumbled forth. I was hoping you might be able to speak to someone. Something released from Andrew's chest. He was not being asked to run the church auction, but the ambiguity of Suzanne's request kept him guarded. Who? he asked. About what? Well, said Suzanne, glancing at Ernest, it's a family friend's relative. We don't know him exactly, really, but he's been having a hard time since... Well, there was a death in the family about a month ago, and... Suzanne continued before Andrew could speak. It's just that he's responding in a similar way to how you did when... when Pearl died, prompted Andrew. Suzanne's shoulders seemed to relax. Her face softened, and when she looked at him, her brown eyes were warm. Yes, she said, when Pearl died. Andrew picked up his fork again, twirling it in his fingers. He was silent for a moment, then... Well then... Well, then what? Suzanne prodded, and Ernest laid a hand on her arm. Andrew didn't respond right away. He couldn't help his initial gut reaction. Fear, and, of course, constant, pulsing ribbons of insufficiency. What was he supposed to say? The words that others had spoken to him in the aftermath of Pearl's death, words like, 
I'm so sorry for your loss, and she's in a better place now, and stay strong, it'll be okay. We're all empty and unhelpful. They offered no respite, because they tried to substitute respite for the aching, gaunt pain that, although terrible and awful in the realest sense of the words, was still necessary. It had been necessary, Andrew knew, not to be pushed away, but balanced. Always balanced. This too, however, was something learned and not told. In that moment, bathed in the light streaming through the Endleway's kitchen windows, Andrew thought of Mac. How he had journeyed by Andrew's side, hiking mountains and descending onto ridges and valleys, guiding him every step of the way, but never insisting on a perfect path. A true companion. But even at Andrew's side, Mac could not have led if Andrew had not chosen to follow. I can talk to him, said Andrew quietly, if he's willing to listen. Suzanne's face lit up, and then she softened again. That would be really wonderful, Andrew. Thank you. His family lives in a town nearby. He's staying with them. But my friend said they would all come to the town night's festival bonfire this weekend, if you'd be willing to come. Andrew grimaced. He looked at Ernest. Are you going? Of course he's going, said Suzanne, as if it were a ridiculous question. Ernest made a gesture. Well, there you go. Andrew took a deep breath. The storyteller's words ran through his mind for what seemed like the fiftieth time, though this time there was a pressing to understand and believe the truth of them. Your words matter when you choose to share them. Andrew had not been to a town night's festival bonfire since before Pearl had died. This Friday, there were many more people than he remembered there being. Crowds milled through the boutique district, which was really just the street adjacent to Maine, and which had a locally crafted jewelry store, a few small-scale designer shops, and a salon or two. Doors were held open by bricks, and music drifted between the shops. The bonfire itself, situated behind the food and stuff, and strategically close to the river, was at least 20 feet high. A few of the younger men from the town, the designated fire watchers, sat on piles of logs with buckets of water at their feet. They joked amongst themselves and waved at clusters of women as they passed. Women from a few towns over who, though they came to shop at the boutique sales, usually doubled back to the fire more than a few times to make the men's acquaintance. Other folks, young and old, sat in lawn chairs at least 30 feet away from the fire, sipping hot cocoa. Kids with chocolate-stained lips dashed between the chairs playing tag or snuck down to the river to catch crawfish if they could find them. The sight of men, women, and children milling or sitting about, playing and laughing, it tickled Andrew's memory. And standing on the back porch of the food and stuff, taking it all in, he thought of the wildering people's village. A soft pain tugged at his heart, and in that moment he wished he could go back. He wished he could sit at Sam's feet and listen to a thousand stories of the Boulder family's generational antics or understand what had caused the wheelchair-bound storyteller to lose his legs. To hear about the pain, and the healing, and the delicately woven journey between the two. But even as he wistfully remembered that night, sitting with Mac by the wildering people's fire, Andrew was still glad. He was glad to watch these people, 
alive and laughing here, too, in this town. He was glad, even in the background, to be a part of it all. Andrew, whispered Suzanne to his left. That's him, over there by the fire, she pointed. Andrew followed her finger. In the midst of the clusters of people, there sat a man in a blue lawn chair, covered in a knitted blanket and set apart from any other group. He was hunched over facing the flames, and as he reached up to draw back his hood because of the heat, Andrew saw a shiver of silver above the man's lips. Andrew's heart tugged at him. Even from a distance, this man looked familiar, but he couldn't place why. I think his family is out shopping, whispered Suzanne, but they know you're coming. He knows too. This was a start, Andrew thought. The man was willing to talk to someone. Andrew couldn't have said the same thing about himself a month after Pearl had died. I'll be around, Suzanne said, touching his arm. Andrew nodded, his hands numb. Whatever Sam had said, he didn't feel that he was in any sort of capacity to provide advice. Not guidance or some blathering random story about his dead wife, a woman that this man did not know. But it did not matter, Sam had said, whether or not people knew Pearl. This wasn't the point of stories or the reason they spoke healing. In this large group of festival-goers, a couple hundred people laughing and running and chittering on about the minor details of their daily lives, there might be no one who understood this man's pain. The raw, gaping hole that death had left in his chest. A hole that would not be filled no matter what he tried to pour into it. Distraction, vices, whatever they were, they were like sand cascading into a bottomless pit. Not even stories could fill that void. But maybe, just maybe, they could begin to coat and soothe the gritty sandpaper edges. Andrew walked down the steps of the food and stuff, hands shaking. Words resurrect, he told himself over and over again as he stepped closer to the fire, feeling his skin start to heat and his eyes start to water even within 40 feet of the flames. A few feet from the man, he stopped. The man didn't move. His profile was in shadow. But before Andrew could speak, he heard an old, tired, accented voice. You must be Andrew, he said. Andrew nodded, and then cleared his throat. Yes. He took a blanket out from under his arm, one Suzanne had thought to bring, and spread it out on the ground. He sat cross-legged, and shielding his eyes, looked up at the man. And you are? he asked, realizing Suzanne in all of her excitement and nervous fretting over the past week, which had done nothing for Andrew's own nerves, had neglected to tell him what this gentleman's name was. Ignacio, said the man, and he looked down at Andrew. Andrew sucked in his breath. The man did look familiar. He had silver-white hair and a large mustache. His eyes were green, a deep green, the same color of the evergreen trees that dotted the shores of the river beyond the fire they now sat at. Now, they were tired and dull. But Andrew found himself imagining them, years, or even weeks before, and how they must have twinkled. Ignacio looked away, into the fire. I don't want to take much of your time, he said, staring at the flames. I don't even know why I came. 
Andrew swallowed. Did your family make you come? He had heard himself ask. Ignacio looked at him, and beneath the mustache, his lips twitched into something like a smile. Then it was gone. Not exactly, he said. Andrew waited, but Ignacio was quiet. Then, before Andrew could speak, he continued. I've been alone for a long time, Andrew. Even before... He sucked in a breath. Even before the accident. They... My family isn't around much, except... Well, they're gone now. Ignacio stopped, then, and his mustache quivered under shaky breaths. He cleared his throat, frowned for a moment, and then nodded. Yes, well, my sister knows. She knows your friend, the bouncy one. She, uh... Suzanne, Andrew offered. Suzanne, Ignacio nodded. Suzanne told her that she had a friend who had... had lost his wife. He glanced at Andrew. And well, that... It had almost killed him. Andrew was quiet. Ignacio sucked in another rattling breath. Some days, he said, his voice rough and quiet so that Andrew had to lean in to hear him. Some days, I think I might be okay. A lump formed in Andrew's throat, and he was conscious of the huddled man next to him, probably his own age, but who in this moment now appeared a hundred years older. But then, said Ignacio through gritted teeth, he swallowed, and his voice was softer, musing. I think what a disservice that would be to them, to live this way. Yes, said Andrew quietly, I understand. I know you do, said Ignacio, looking at him then. And in the firelight his eyes were a golden green, wide and pleading. His hands, light brown and deeply calloused, appeared from under his blanket as he clutched Andrew's arm. Then, looking down at his fingers, Ignacio opened them, released Andrew, and withdrew his hands back under the blanket and to himself. Your pearl. She was wonderful, wasn't she? Andrew's heart grew warm. Yes, she was the best person I knew, he said softly. Ignacio grunted and nodded. His eyes closed. I bet she was. Andrew didn't say anything more. It was not the time. Suzanne said that you went to the mountains, said Ignacio suddenly. I did. Andrew's voice was soft. They called me. Ignacio frowned at him. That's what she said, too. She sounded doubtful, or at least confused. Andrew said nothing. Beside them, the bonfire crackled and spit as the two of the fire-watching men loaded up a few more logs at its base. Te creo, muttered Ignacio. I believe you. He said again, more loudly. Andrew raised his eyebrows. You do, he asked. Ignacio's gaze slipped from the fire to Andrew. His green eyes held the faintest of twinkles. Of course. The mountains called to you like the river calls to me each week. It tells me where the best fish are. It whispers when is best to lay the net, and when is the best to take her up again. It's been quiet this last month, 
but I think that's because it wants me to take a break. To go to the forest for a bit. Because that's where they would be. It was the forest that told me to come here anyways. Ignacio, Andrew said suddenly. Whom have you lost? His question was soft, gentle, and patient. But Andrew's heartbeat was loud in his chest. The blood in his ears pounded and he swallowed to try and push it down, but the more he looked into the soft green eyes before him, the more he was sure. But how? How could it be? My son, whispered Ignacio, eyes still locked on Andrew, and my granddaughter. Last month in a car accident not too far from here. His eyes welled and he blinked. Beyond the bonfire before them, the trees of the forest by the river danced in the evening breeze. A creaking arose from their twisting trunks, and in the branches the sound of an axe, the solid thunk of metal sticking in thick, fissured wood, rang into the night. Though it was dark, the fire was warm, and the light from the flames made the shadows of the forest flicker past the veil of smoke. Light moving through the trees, the forest bent to its will. A thousand things flashed through Andrew's mind, a black and red flannel darting effortlessly through tight clusters of pines, the tip of a hat over bright, winking green eyes, the image of a red truck habitually tracing the curving lines of a country road, the sound of bells and singing and dark braids swinging as they bounced under a nylon rope. And as always, the sometimes drawling, sometimes timeless voice that was as sure as the forest itself. Julia's favorite thing was to visit her abuelo, my father. He lived a few towns over by himself in a little cabin. He fished and sold the fish to the local grocery store every Monday. In Andrew's mind, a red truck swerved. Red and black flanneled hands overcorrected, and it was dark. And Mac's voice. She was eight years old when I lost her. Mac had been driving when the truck had crashed. Julia had died. On the mountain with Mac so many months ago, hearing the pain in his voice as he recounted the loss of his daughter, Andrew had understood. His heart had yearned for the very man that sat in front of him now. How he had coped with the loss of his granddaughter. And he had yearned for Mac, too. How he had grappled with the death of his sweet little girl. She was eight years old when I lost her. But how old were you, Mac? How old were you when your father lost you? When neither you nor your daughter arrived for your weekly fish fry? Did you understand the pain he went through? Do you understand the pain he goes through now as he mourns you both? I am here to be a Macario, a blessing. Yes, you were. You were, of course you were. Without you, I could not have found Pearl again. I could not have understood the depths and heights of my own loss, the loss of myself and her and the life we had together. I could not begin to gather it to myself, to process it, to set it aside what I had to do and hold close to what I could. None of that would have been possible. None of that would have been possible still, if not for you.
You have helped me, Mac had said, and you will. Ignacio, Andrew said, and for a moment his voice seemed to echo in his ears. Would you... Would you tell me about them? Ignacio's eyes grew hard for a moment, like the moss that had dried too long in the sun. But then, after regarding Andrew for a moment, the muscles in his face relaxed. You want to hear about my Macario? And my Julia? Yes, Andrew swallowed, blinking back his own tears. Yes, he whispered, if you'd be willing to share. Ignacio gave a short, barking laugh. I didn't talk much about my kids to strangers, even when they were alive. We're not strangers, said Andrew gently, and Ignacio smiled. No, he said after a moment. No, I don't guess we are, and you wouldn't be a stranger to Mac if you'd met him. That's for sure. His eyes grew wistful. Andrew nodded, a small smile at his lips. I bet not, he said. Ignacio grunted and looked into the fire. Perhaps we could walk in the forest a bit, or tomorrow. But for now, I think I'll just sit here, if that's okay. He looked at Andrew again. My sister says that it's not good for me to sit around. He shrugged and stared into the fire. Then again, she don't want me trucking around in the forest either. Andrew thought for a moment. Everyone moves on eventually whether it's here or there. They search a while, or rest a while, or hike in forests for a while, or sit by fires a while, and then they figure they better stop that and move on, or keep doing that and move on. Ignacio looked at him sideways. Hmm, he said. My Macario used to say something like that. The two men were very quiet then. In front of them, the fire crackled and spit, and the music played from Main Street District where the light lanterns were strung and people danced and shopped and ate and sang. Above, the stars were bright, and the Milky Way was visible above the smoke in the tree line, a white, twinkling pathway spilling overhead, past the town and out over the black silhouetted peaks in the distance. The egg of that day's sun had long since cracked, and all traces of its golden yoke was gone from the bowl of the horizon before them. But it would be back, Andrew knew. A new day would come, like it always had. The egg would rise from the depths of the earth, perfect and whole, soaking up the dawn of the horizon and transforming it into a day. The winds would blow across the long, waving grasses of his field, and Pearl's old, tattered hammock would wave with them. And this time, so would the cotton-blue curtains from springtimes long past, and the tangled tails of a single dappled horse that once again made the grasses of the valley home. It was simple and good. Simple and good. Unlike he'd ever known. Beyond his field ran the valley, and the silently flowing river and beyond even these, solid, towering rock that rose at the furthest visible regions into snow-crusted peaks. Sometimes, 
On a windy day, he would stand just beyond the edge of his crumbling fence, facing them, feeling the wind whip through his clothes. The corduroy pants he still wore from time to time, but now with a thin piece of flannel sewn to the inside of the cuffs, so they didn't itch so much anymore. On the days that he wore them, those windy days, he would stand in the field as he did before and listen. But the mountains hadn't called to him since. With a craning neck and sensitive ears, sometimes, sometimes, he thought he might be picking up something. Not a call like a summons, but something else. A melody, perhaps. The beginnings of a song, surely. One whose soft, yearning tones were last heard in a moonlit hospital room as he looked into the eyes of his dying pearl. And though these days he was the only one standing in that open field, he was not alone. Because there, riding on the wind that blew from the ancient, enduring peaks beyond, there came from the mountains to the man of song, a story, one that they could tell together. serves as my guide, strong and constant as the tide. 